0: Listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 126. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. If you don't know already, you can go to Warrior Priest at WordPress and click the subscribe button and get the latest episodes sent directly to your email inbox. Otherwise, you can go to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, click the subscribe button, click the support button, buy me a cup of coffee, support the podcast, do all the things that one does with these types of things. Otherwise, let's just dive right into it today. I've been going back, as I think I mentioned last week, I've been going back through my old Alcoholics Anonymous and Recovery resources and materials, reviewing them recovering things, no pun intended, that I had forgotten, that I had learned, listening to presentations and lectures by sober alcoholics and drug addicts, and it got me thinking, why don't we talk that much about addiction in the ancient world? We talk plenty about addiction in the 20th century. We talk about how definitions of addiction changes with each generation, how treatment changes with each generation. We can talk about opium addiction back in the 19th century. Talk about addiction to absent at certain times in the last century. But what about the 16th century? What about the 3rd century? What about the 2nd century BC? Was there addiction before 250 years ago? How did people deal with addiction? How did they cope? What are their treatments for addiction before 250, 300 years ago? So I started doing a little bit of digging on the internets and discovered there's not a whole lot of literature out there, not a whole lot of curiosity about addiction in the ancient world. I think a large part of that is due to the fact that there's just not a lot of literature about addiction and addicts in the ancient world. And if the material is not there, if it's not recorded, then we just don't know. We can make educated guesses, which is what I'm going to do today, but that's about the extent of it. And therefore, scholarship is going to be lacking in that area. But that being said, I did find on the Castle Craig website, it's a UK website, a blog written by Alex Taylor back in 2013 entitled Ancient Addictions that I thought I'd read today. And then if we have time, jump forward and ask How do drugs and alcohol and trauma pair up in the present tense? Because for myself, for others, for people I know in law enforcement, for those I know in the military and veterans in particular, that tends to be a topic of conversation that comes up as we engage with each other, especially after they find out that I'm an addict in recovery and that I have extensive time and experience With addiction and growing up with a vet who was an alcoholic and drug addict, I first had an experience on both sides of the house when it comes to addiction, both suffering it and suffering from it. But first then, let's dive into this article by Alex Taylor entitled Ancient Traditions. Did addiction exist before? Was Alexander the Great an alcoholic? Did Odysseus take opium in the land of the lotus eaters? Was the romance of Antony and Cleopatra an alcohol-fueled orgy? And was the oracle at Delphi the world's first rehab? Hold on a minute, he writes. Wasn't the classical world of ancient Greece and Rome supposed to have been a truly blessed place? Where human behavior and its consequences were perhaps, for the first time, studied and understood. Where people tried to live up to superhuman ideals and where, in literature at any rate, gods interacted physically with humans. In this materially simple but intellectually sophisticated age, weren't men and women supposed to have lived lives according to both man-made laws and divine guidance? That gave them moral, spiritual, and ethical values that are the envy of the world today? The plays of Sophocles and Euripides are full of this sort of thing. Doesn't all that add up to a truly golden age? Nobody ever mentioned addiction or character defects among the heroic men of that time when we were at school, did they? Yet as so often with history, the facts are sometimes ambiguous and open to interpretation. Take that famous institution of the Greek world, the Oracle at Delphi. People came to this place the temple of Apollo, at points of crisis in their lives, to help them make decisions and to ask for advice. Significantly, the temple was also one of the most important sites for the cult of Dionysius, god of wine, and the regulation of the bacchanal ceremonies associated with the cult, involving heavy drinking and orgies, generally speaking. Written on the walls of the temple itself were many pithy phrases that echoed down the ages to resonate with addicts today. For example, water is best. Know thyself. Nothing in excess. Several utterances survive of the oracle itself. Many are political in nature, but fragments, such as, the strength of lions or bulls shall not hold him, for he has the power of Zeus and will not be checked, point to an emphatic belief in the power of the gods. The Greeks were very aware of the dangers of overindulgence in alcohol. Their literature alludes to it often. For example, the Roman historian Seneca, also a Stoic, born the year that Julius Caesar invaded Britain, wrote that excessive alcohol will destroy the mind and magnify character defects. His words, not mine. Well, Seneca's words are not necessarily overtly written into the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You won't find them quoted in the big book, but you will hear this language in the 12 steps in the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. You will hear this around tables and meetings of addicts. Excessive alcohol will destroy the mind and magnify character defects. The thing about drinking in particular, at least for myself, speaking only for myself, because my preferred alcohol choice was whiskey, Seagram's, and Coke was my favorite drink. It never changed me. It never changed my personality. It never changed my character. What it did is it revealed it. I know a lot of people in denial about their alcohol abuse, their addiction, who like to say, well, I'm just a different person when I drink. And they use that as an excuse, as a justification, as a form of apology to say, I wasn't myself last night. Or, you know, I just, like I say, I'm a different person when I drink and I'm just, the things I said I didn't mean and and what I did, that's not me. Well, actually, that's exactly you. That's what alcohol does. It is an uninhibitor. It removes the mask. It lets the true you out. And so the things that you actually think about people come out of your mouth when you drink. And the more you drink, the more honest you become. Alcohol is, in its essence, a truth serum. Whatever your character, it will come out when you drink alcohol. And the more that you drink, the more that your true character will be revealed to others. So it is an excuse, in my opinion, that alcohol, in particular, makes you behave in a way that is contrary to your actual character. No. In my experience... With myself and with others, it simply lets out the demon. It simply reveals the truth of what you're thinking and what's in your heart for the world to see. And that is why when you get into recovery, there's so much shame and guilt to deal with. There's so much blame to deal with. Because you have to take ownership of the fact that when you drank, the real you came out and it wasn't pretty. And you're not proud of that person that other people saw. So, how do you explain to people? How do you make amends to people? How do you ask for forgiveness when you have to kind of start off with when I drank, that is what I actually thought about you at that time. When I drank and what I did to you, that's how I thought about you at that time. And I'm sorry, I was wrong. I don't think that way anymore and I don't want to behave that way anymore because I don't like that person anymore. I'm not proud of that person and that's why I'm in recovery. That's why I'm working the 12 steps. That's why I go to meetings. That's why I have a sponsor. That's why I'm taking ownership for everything that I did while I was abusing and being abused by alcohol. It destroyed my mind. And it magnified all of my character defects. And you had to suffer it. But once you say that out loud, the chains fall off. And you're truly free for the first time in your life. At least that's what it felt like for me. The first time I made amends, and I walked away from that experience, I couldn't wait to make my second amends and my third and my fifth and my 15th and i love making amends. i really do. even when the person that i make amends to says i don't forgive you. that's okay. i deserve that. i earned that. and i'm not here for forgiveness. i'm here to clear the tables, to wipe the slate clean between the two of us and to say it's it's on me. that's on me. i own that. and i need to admit that to you. it's a part of my program. it's part of my recovery is I have to be rigorously honest with myself and other people at all times. This is why I did this. This is what alcohol did to me. And so I'm sorry. But the Roman historian Seneca wrote that. So obviously he knew the effects of alcohol and alcohol abuse. Obviously the oracle at Delphi understood the consequences of alcohol abuse and addiction. And maybe they didn't call it an addiction. Maybe they looked at it as a moral failing. It was not a virtue to get drunk. That drunken orgies and bacchanals, carnivals, festivals of the flesh were not virtuous forms of behavior and they were frowned upon. But what if you couldn't not participate? What if the call of the bacchanal was too strong? What if the wine was too good to stop drinking? What if the things that you were saying and the people that you were doing things with that were vicious and cruel and unhinged, what if you couldn't stop yourself because you didn't want to stop yourself because you were a slave to the drink? Isn't that addiction? It affects your work. It affects your relationships. It affects you physically, mentally, emotionally isn't that addiction, whether it's called that or not? So he continues, how tantalizing it is to wonder if the oracle at Delphi, with its control of the cult of Dionysius, god of wine, its recovery jargon slogans, and its spiritual utterances, might perhaps have offered an alcohol counseling service as well as its other functions. Could it be that we are looking at the world's first rehab, were these the early ideas that lie behind today's well-used 12-step programs? Look again at those Delphic quotes. Water is best. Isn't that step one? The power of Zeus, step two and three. Know thyself, step four. They've all carried forward, which means perhaps there is some objective truths at play here that transcend time and geography. Maybe addiction is a natural part of human nature. It's not good, but it is something that we reach out for when we struggle, when we're afflicted, when we suffer trauma, and that it's not you, and it's not your family or genetics, and it's not where your great-great-grandparents immigrated from. It's human nature to want to medicate and anesthetize pain and trauma, to cope with people and things that were said and done that leave an open wound inside of you that you can't close, you can't heal. There's a weight that comes with trauma That pushes down on your chest, at least in my experience. It's like trying to push 500 pounds off your chest. Every breath sometimes feels like an act of absolute will, that you're fighting for a breath because the weight is so heavy upon you. When I was 24 and accepted that I had reached terminal velocity with my addiction and that even though I wanted to stop, I couldn't. The weight of that crushed me. I ended friendships for no good reason. I withdrew. I isolated. I sought out the company of people that were as miserable and enslaved to drugs as I was. I lied. I cheated. I stole. I did things that, to this day, people who knew me at the time don't know that I was doing. It creates a cycle where you cause pain and you suffer pain. And so you anesthetize the pain, which causes you more pain, which brings more pain. You surround yourself with people that hurt you and you hurt them because you're all chasing the dragon. You're all trying to find the next fix, the next high. Because you're just trying to get out from under the weight. But it seems like it just keeps piling up and multiplying and increasing until finally it kills you. In the program, we say there's only three ways out of this. Crazy and jail or dead. And there's a fourth way, though, that you're not told about when you're in the throes of addiction. Not very often anyways, I wasn't, which is there's a fourth option here. You could get clean and sober. (laughs) It doesn't have to be doom. It doesn't have to be cataclysmic. Crazy and jail and dead are certainly options that are on the table for any addict. But what about trying to choose to live sober? Why not? You've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. So maybe it's time to acknowledge that your choices are not leading you in the right direction. That you are hurting yourself and others and others are hurting you because they're hurting And you've created this vicious cycle of violence and pain and trauma which leans into addiction. Maybe find different friends. Maybe move away from where you are currently at. Find a different job. Seek out the help of counselors and other addicts who are in recovery. Why not check yourself into rehab for 90 days? Again... Everything you've tried so far has failed, so why not try the crazy outlandish option of sobriety? Water is best, the power of God, and knowing thyself. It's covered in the first four steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if recovery was going on at Delphi, there would have been plenty of customers. Top of the celebrity A-list, Alexander the Great of Macedon. Privately funded, no doubt. He is on record as having publicly insulted his mother-in-law at a drunken banquet, killing his close friend, Clytus, in the course of another drunken banquet. And finally, he set fire to the royal palace at Persepolis, a city he had just conquered, in the course of yet another drunken banquet. Plenty of one step, step one examples for him then. Whatever treatment he might have had seems to have failed, however, because his death at an early age from a mysterious illness bears some of the hallmarks of alcohol dependence. Or possibly he was poisoned because there was a lot of problems that people had with Alexander. They felt he had gone Persian, so to speak, gone native, abandoned his homeland. And yet because they knew of his love for the fruit of the vine, so to speak, for the spirits. Perhaps that's how they poisoned him to death. It wouldn't be too difficult with an alcoholic to dump some poison in his cup knowing he was going to drain it right down to the bottom, last drop. But regardless, everything I've read about Alexander the Great screams alcohol abuse. And why not? Think of how he was raised. Think of what he was raised to become. The man fought at the front of his army in numerous battles. Think of the pain and the trauma that he suffered as a consequence. The almost monomaniacal drive to reach the ocean on the other side of India. The number of men he buried along his journeys. All of the campaigns, all of the blood, all of the death. Why wouldn't he turn to alcohol? Why wouldn't he turn to opium and other drugs to cope with the trauma? What other options were there for him? What were offered to him? Who was he going to listen to? He's Alexander the Great. I've met people like this. One of my sponsors was like this. He was at the top of his profession. He, was, he had a $60,000 expense account that was open to him that he could just tap into anytime he wanted. And so he put $60,000 of the federal government's money, the Department of Defense's money, up his nose. And walking on the stage to present at a conference, all of these people from the Department of Defense, all these people from the Pentagon and all these three-letter agencies sitting there in this auditorium, walking out onto the stage to the podium, his heart exploded. Right there. Massive heart attack. He woke up three days later in the hospital. He was handcuffed to the bed. And there's a person from the government sitting there saying, you owe us (laughs) $60,000. Oh, by the way, you're fired. And to his credit, once he got clean and sober, he repaid every penny of that $60,000. It's difficult when you're at the top the top of your profession, the top of your game, top of the world. It's difficult to listen to people tell you that you're on a self-destructive path. How can I be on a self-destructive path when I'm at the peak? I'm standing at the top of the mountain. How can you possibly say, how can you think that I'm going to fall off? Well, once you reach the top of anything, there's only one direction to go from there. And how you get down That's the real question. Are you going to walk or are you going to fall off the edge of a cliff? But when you're at the top like that, when you're the most powerful man on earth in the front of the most powerful army the world has ever seen, and someone says, hey Al, maybe you ought to cut back on the drinking a little bit. You ever thought about maybe going to see the Oracle at Delphi? You ever thought of maybe surrounding yourself with some sober influences and some wise elders who can steer you in another direction other than getting drunk every night to fall asleep and getting drunk every morning just so you can get your armor on and go into battle and get drunk after the battle to deal with the trauma that you just experienced? Let's try a different path, Alexander. That doesn't seem to have been the case. But then there's Marcus Antonius of Rome famous as the other half of Cleopatra, of noble birth but with a reputation for heavy drinking and a known gambling problem. As the historian and Stoic Seneca put it, what else was it but drinking to excess together with a passion for Cleopatra that ruined that great and gifted man? Certainly, Mark Antony's foray into Egypt, which began well, descended into chaos and disaster in a way that will seem familiar to a lot of addicted people today, Amusing true stories also survive about ordinary people getting drunk, like the one recounted by the historian, Athenaeus. He explains why a certain house is called the Triremi, meaning a ship. It seems that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> choked on my own spit. That's, that's great. That's just super professional. It seems that some young men living there got drunk and thought they were at sea, sailing in a Treremi. Encountering, they thought, a bad storm and fearing that the treremi might sink, they began to lighten the load by throwing furniture out of the upstairs windows of the house. The magistrates came to investigate the uproar and some arrests were made. Clearly, heavy intoxication took place in the treremi, of the kind that you might easily find in any city today. I can honestly say I have never been so drunk or so high that I thought that my apartment was a ship and that I was in the middle of a storm. I have tripped so hard that I thought that my blanket turned into the Taj Mahal and neon spiders came out of the Taj Mahal and climbed into my ears. But I have never been so (laughs) high to think that I was on a ship at sea while in my apartment. That's amazing. I can't even imagine the level of intoxication you have to reach to think that you're on a ship while inside a house. Yes, you may have a drinking problem if you think your house is a ship. (laughs) Lastly, though, perhaps he should have been first. We come to Homer. Homer, whose amazing works were probably written or put together by several people about 3,000 years ago. In the Odyssey, the journey of Odysseus home from the Trojan War, we have several instances of both drunkenness and drug taking. In one example, Odysseus plies the one-eyed cyclops, Polyphemus, with strong wine until he passes out, then blinds his eye with a sharp stick, thus making him history's first blind drunk. Yeah, I see what you did there. Nice. In another episode, Odysseus' ship arrives at the land of the lotus eaters, and the crew get zonked out eating a plant that certainly was not a lotus. It was probably opium or cannabis, of which both are recorded as available in classical times, though their use seems to have been limited except for the Scythians in Alexander's army. The Scythian horsemen were famous for building what looked like a sweat lodge, but was really them hotboxing cannabis and other smokable herbs that they, they would roll them into balls that they would then carry around in a pouch. And then they would take the ball and throw it into the fire while inside of these small pup tent-like structures. And then the tent, of course, would fill with the smoke from these small balls of herbs And they would get high as a kite before and after they went to battle. And many of the Greek soldiers then recorded this, that they saw this and joined in. So the Scythians knew about cannabis and they knew about burning it and they knew about hotboxing. So why is it strange to think that Homer or those who brought together these stories and put them all under the moniker of Homer didn't know about that as well? So what, you might be tempted to ask, is the point of all this? Well, we have, I think, established that in the classical world, the use of alcohol was widespread, and excessive drinking happened quite often. In addition, drugs such as opium and cannabis were certainly known and available, though not widely used. Well, I suppose that would depend upon your access to these plants more than anything. The big unanswered question is this. Well, actually, it would be access to the plants and also just the money to buy it. I'm sure people that lived in Rome had access to drug dealers, just like today's people who live in cities. But did they have the money so that they could afford to buy the drugs? Because I'm sure that the the drug economy and cartels are nothing new. There were drug cartels in Rome. There were drug cartels in Athens. How was it run? Did people prostitute themselves so that they could acquire drugs and alcohol? Would they sell themselves? Would they sell their children? Would they mortgage their possessions to get alcohol and drugs? Well, human nature being what it is, I don't doubt that that was true in Rome or Athens, any less than it's true today. When people are struggling and they're in pain, when life is a meat grinder of drudgery and tedium, people will find a way to anesthetize the pain. They will find a way to cope that is not healthy. So in addition to alcohol, you had opium, you had cannabis, but the big unanswered question is this. If alcohol was widely used in the ancient world and if some other drugs were also available, was serious addiction a problem? And if so, how was it treated? Again, were there alcohol and drug-dependent people wandering the streets of Athens and Rome? And what happened to them? Did any recover? We will probably never know. But perhaps the answer lies buried at Delphi. That is The End of Ancient Addictions by Alex Taylor. August Fourteenth, two 2013. Posted to the castlecraig.co.uk website. I will post a link in the show notes at WordPress. And also at Anchor FM when I post this uh, to the website. So that being said then, let's jump to the present tense. How do people deal with trauma in the present tense? How do people use and abuse alcohol and drugs in the present tense to cope with trauma? Well, let's dive into this. This is by Cindy Turner. This was written in 2017. Did you know one of the main predictors for having a substance use disorder is experiencing trauma? So here's my first. I'm going to just put this out there right now. This is a personal thing. I despise soft language. There's a great piece by George Carlin on YouTube you can watch. Just type in George Carlin soft language. I despise therapeutic language because I think it softens affliction, it softens disease, it softens trauma by trying to make it more palatable. And the way that we do this is by nerfing all the edges. And we do this by nerfing the language, shell shock. World War I, post-traumatic stress disorder, completely dehumanized, completely stripped of humanity, clinical, sterile, cold, post-traumatic stress disorder. No, it's shell shock. You had a massive traumatic experience that caused your nerves and your synopses to overload and shut down. I just want to put that out there because I despise substance use disorder. I don't have a substance use disorder. I'm an addict. It's not a disorder. (laughs) I'm an addict. So did you know, sorry, I just had to put that out there so that if I start talking negatively or throw out little sarcastic asides, I'm not hammering on Cindy Turner's article. I think it's a good article. I just don't appreciate therapeutic language and the use of soft language to deal with, well, the harsh reality of addiction and trauma. So that being said, back to the article. Did you know one of the main predictors for having a substance use disorder is experiencing trauma? A quick internet search yields many definitions of trauma. I think the simplest definition is this, an emotional response to a terrible event. Note, I did not specify what type of event or what type of response. These are all individualized. As an aside, everybody's bottom is different. You don't have to experience a traumatic hitting bottom to recognize I've hit bottom. You may literally just realize in the moment, maybe you're having a glass of wine with friends. Maybe you're sitting out in the garage, splitting a six-pack with a buddy. Maybe you're at a party and it got out of control. Maybe you wake up in the drunk tank. Whatever your bottom is, you have a strong emotional response to an experience, to a terrible event. That terrible event is usually you realizing my life has become unmanageable and it's out of control and I need to do something about my drinking or my drug use. But it's different for every individual, like she says. So what might be traumatic for me could have little or no impact on you. A person experiencing trauma is in the best position to define their experience based on what they are thinking, feeling, and going through. For example, when I was four, I got the belt or a rolled up magazine or a wooden spoon. When I was older and I did something that my father deemed to be egregiously bad, I got hit with a belt (laughs) that traumatized me and it affected me deeply to this day. Other people I know, they got the belt when they were young, didn't bother them in the least. They actually appreciated it when they got older. So when I relate that story to some people, they say, well, I got hit with a belt too. I didn't become a drug addict. It's like, yeah, but I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about myself. Stop diminishing my experience by overlaying your experience on top of me. This isn't about you, so don't make it about you. I think that's the most difficult thing for me as an addict is when other people who are not addicts try to explain away and redefine my trauma by way of their experiences that they didn't experience as trauma. You dehumanize me. You discredit my experiences. You disrespect me by doing that. The point is to recognize this is how it affected you. And this isn't about me. It's about you. Yes, it didn't affect me. Great. Good for you. But for me, it affected me deeply. And it's one of the main factors that drove me to drink and to abuse drugs, to cope with the abuse that I suffered as a child. Others call it discipline. I call it abuse. Each person's experience will differ. But I think if you are not an addict, if you're not in recovery, if you don't understand where this person is coming from when they say these things, I've heard this in families where one child ended up becoming an addict and the other child did not, And they're constantly at war with each other because one says to the other, but I grew up in the same house. They're my parents too. They disciplined us the same and I didn't become an addict. So how can you say that your experience of mom and dad growing up led you to addiction or drove you to addiction or facilitated you picking up a bottle? Because each of us is different. Anybody who has more than one child recognizes this immediately. How five children can come from the same two parents and each child's personality be radically different than the other four It's one of the great mysteries of my life. <laughs> but there it is. My brother and I, completely different personalities, completely different people. Just because you grow up in the same house doesn't mean that you have the same experience. It doesn't mean that you process those experiences the same way. So don't discredit a person's trauma simply because it didn't happen to you. It said, thank God it didn't happen to you and recognize this is how it played out for them. And that it's not about you and it's not a judgment against your family per se, but rather that person who is trying to get clean and sober, hopefully, recognizes that my interactions in this home, my relationship with my parents, with my siblings, how I interfaced with the world growing up was different than you. And this is how it played out for me then once I started to drink. Maybe you didn't get into the party scene. Maybe you went in and out of house parties. It was a part of your growing up in your high school and college years. And then you left it all behind when you got out of college. For some, they never stopped. Again, it's not about you. It's about how they processed reality and then how they coped with the trauma that they experienced as a child, as a teenager, in college, as an adult. But the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, is to diminish their experience by saying, well, that's not true because I didn't experience that and I didn't turn out that way. No, instead, again, just thank God and be grateful you didn't. And then ask the person that's talking to you, whether they're a sibling, a parent, a child, a friend, whoever, is there anything I can do to help? I don't understand. Maybe the best thing for me to do would be to go online and do some research and learn about addiction and learn about trauma and how addiction and trauma are linked. Learn how to speak to someone who's an addict or in recovery. Pick up some tools. Go to Al-Anon. Go to Narconon. Learn. Educate yourself. I think that's the first step in helping addicts is you educate yourself. Detach from the addict detach from their personality, detach from the addiction and go to a meeting, go to group, listen to other people who live with and are related to or know addicts. How do they live with this? How do they cope with this? So instead of telling people who they are and what they are because you refuse to listen, take a step back, check your ego and educate yourself. That way, you'll have that information for the rest of your life. And therefore, whenever you cross paths with an alcoholic or an addict, not only can you more easily identify that person as an addict or alcoholic, but then you can also use those tools that you've learned about through your own education to benefit yourself and the addict who's struggling or the addict who's in recovery. Because a person experiencing trauma is in the best position to define their experience based on what they are thinking, feeling, and going through. Active listening is one of the most important qualities when you interface with an addict. Just listen. Listen to what they're saying with their words and then look at their body language, look at their facial expressions. What are they not saying? What can't they say? What do they not know how to express in that moment? If you can listen, you'll learn a lot. So, in one survey of adolescents receiving treatment for substance abuse, more than 70% had a history of trauma exposure. Teens who experienced physical or sexual abuse were three times as likely to use substances than those who had not. 59% of young people with post-traumatic stress develop substance use disorders. 59% of young people, 59% of teens, with post-traumatic stress, develop substance abuse issues. Another study found that 60 to 80% of Vietnam veterans seeking PTS treatment have alcohol use issues. They tend to binge drink in response to memories of trauma. A further concern, veterans over the age of 65 who have PTS are at a higher risk of attempting suicide if they also have an alcohol use disorder and or depression. Alcohol abuse actually creates depression because it's a depressant. And if you're already struggling, if you're already clinically depressed, if the chemicals in your brain are already out of whack because of trauma, drinking adds that weight. It piles on that weight. And when you're sitting there, pulled off on the side of the road out in the country, in the middle of that cornfield in your pickup truck, and you've got a loaded Glock in your glove compartment, and a bottle of wild turkey between your legs, and it's already 80% empty. And you got a baggie, a sandwich bag, full of Vicodin that you're chewing on like they're Rolades, and that weight is pushing down on you. And you're staring off above the skyline. You don't see the corn. You don't see the horizon. You just stare up at nothing. And you think to yourself, what's the point? This pain's never going to subside. This weight's never going to be lifted off of me. God obviously has abandoned me. My brothers are dead. My friends and family can't possibly understand what I'm going through. So why not eat it? Why not just put the gun in my mouth and eat the bullet? Most suicides are committed impulsively. At least that's what all the research I've read indicates. Most people decide to commit suicide and kill themselves within five to 10 minutes of that thought entering their mind. So you have a window of five to 10 minutes for those who have made up their minds that they're going to kill themselves. They do not reach out for help. They do not leave a note necessarily. Some do, not all. Every time I try to kill myself, I didn't leave a note because I didn't care. What's the point? What am I going to do? Write a note explaining why I killed myself to people that don't understand me in the first place, which is why I'm in a corner and isolated and alone and depressed and want to kill myself. What's the point? Just end it and get out. So you sit there alone and you just drink and you pop pills and you smoke and you drink and you pop pills and you go in circles and you go in circles and you leave your phone off so no one can get a hold of you. You're not going to get distracted from your mission. It's just you and the gun and the bottle and the pills and nothingness. No future, no past. It's all been obliterated. There's just you right there in the present moment. In fact, you've probably never been more present for yourself in your entire life than in that actual moment. And the weight of infinity falls on you in that moment. Because you look up and what do you see? You see infinity. You see nothing but blue or black, depending on the time of day. You see infinity and the weight of that crushes you. And it's too much. It's too much. So I understand. I've been there. I failed, but I wanted to succeed. And nothing makes you feel like a bigger loser than when you try to commit suicide and then wake up. When you try to overdose and your body's like, yeah, dude, you're going to have to do way more drugs than that to kill us because we're super acclimatized to this. Nothing made me feel like a bigger loser than waking up the next morning after I tried to OD And yet there is an option and that option is sobriety. When you're under all that weight, it seems like a stupid thing to say. Choose sobriety. Choose something other than what you're doing right now. Get help. Admit you can't walk and carry this weight not by yourself. You got to seek out the company of other people who are going through what you've gone through. But again, in that moment, that five to 10 minute window, it's hard to think of those things. It's hard to get out of the truck. It's hard to point the gun at the air and just empty the clip into the sky rather than into your face. Because there's, there's just nothing. There's just nothing. And I'm not going to say that I'm going to sit here and try and tell you what the answer is because I don't know what the answer is. Like I said, for myself, I failed. I failed at killing myself. That was my bottom. I found God at the bottom. As cheesy as that sounds, that's where I found God. Or he found me. He was waiting for me down there and I found him. He found me. And it took 20 years for me to walk out of that valley. And every day, I'm still struggling up the slope. Every day I'm trying to climb out. Every day I slide back. It's a daily fight. It's a mission I'll never complete. And I fail at it miserably. All the time. But I get back up and I keep going. Because I have chosen an option. Sobriety. That's it. No wiggle room. No options. No multiple choice. No other direction to go. It's either down and dead or up. That's it. And up is infinity, up is eternity. That's where I'm going. My nose is pointed true north toward eternity, toward eternal life. And once I got reoriented, once my compass was fixed, that was it. Through all the struggling, through all the suffering, through the hardships, through the failed relationships, through the betrayals, through the double speak and the hypocrisy, through the lies and the deceptions. You just keep moving forward. And you make up your mind that when you were at your weakest and you hit your bottom, in my case anyways, and you didn't die, there must be something more for you to do There's another mission for you to go on. There's something else that you have left undone that needs to be done. And only you can do it. What I discovered once I got sober is how strong I was. I was so strong that I tried to kill myself and I couldn't kill myself. Alcohol couldn't kill me. Drugs couldn't kill me. People who were after me couldn't kill me. All my bad decisions couldn't kill me. And someone said to me then, finally, do you not understand how strong you are? Do you know how many people are dead who did the same thing that you did? They attempted suicide and succeeded. Do you know how many people died in drunk driving accidents? Do you know how many people were shot dead by the types of people that are after you? And yet you're here and you're sober. You're a survivor. So live for them. Live every day of your life for all of those people in the cemetery who would trade places with you in a second for just one day of life. One more day with their family. One more day with their friends. One more day breathing air. One more day walking barefoot through the grass. One more day feeling the sun on their face. You don't think all those people who killed themselves with drugs and alcohol or died as a consequence of drugs and alcohol And the whole culture, you don't think that they would trade places with you no matter how shit your life is right now. They wouldn't trade places with you in a blink just for one more day. So if anything, when I'm feeling sorry for myself, when I'm always me, when I'm in my ego, that's what I remind myself of. All the people in the cemetery that don't get to be in my position, they never get married. They never have kids. They don't get to wrestle with this stuff anymore. To live is to fight. To be alive is a fight every day. When you put your feet on the floor, when you get out of bed, you're choosing to fight. Every day. Doesn't matter if you're an addict or not. So you can fight or you can quit. Those are your options. (sighs) Okay. Speaking of an intense flood of emotions and traumatic reminders. After a traumatic event, she writes, a person may drink to deal with anxiety, depression, irritability. Typically, Alcohol initially seems to relieve these symptoms. When we experience a traumatic event, the brain releases endorphins that help numb the physical and emotional pain of the event. This is our body naturally helping us cope. It's also why I'm addicted to jujitsu and Muay Thai. You didn't honestly think I'd make it an entire episode without referencing jujitsu and Muay Thai, did you? But it's true. I tell people the most powerful drug I've ever taken is jujitsu. There is no second for what it feels like when I'm done with an hour-long sparring session in Muay Thai. The amount of endorphins flooding through my body after two hours on the mat, three hours on the mat, five hours on the mat. It's why I did an episode about overtraining. It might as well just be called Be Careful Not to Get Addicted to MMA. Because those endorphins they numb the pain. I can get punched and kicked and tuned up and subbed and twisted into pretzel shapes. But the amount of endorphins flooding my brain, pumping through my body, numb the physical and emotional pain of what I just went through. That's my body's natural coping mechanism. So, of course, the same part of my brain that releases those endorphins when I drink and do drugs is also the same part of my brain that releases releases endorphins after two hours at an open mat. That's why I have to constantly check myself so that I don't overtrain and I don't spend too much time at the gym because the whole purpose that I walked into a gym was to supplement and augment my recovery. So what good does it do to be in recovery, to grow and better myself as a person? when I'm addicted to the thing that's supposed to be helping me overcome and keep my addiction on a leash. So this interrupts the natural protective function the body was already doing. It basically turns the sound up to 11. It puts it on blast. And as a result, we create a type of emotional withdrawal that can set us up to deal with increased and prolonged distress that could lead to the development of post-traumatic stress. I've actually had nightmares about fights that I've had. I've been able, unable to think when I'm alone in the car because I start replaying sparring rounds that I've had. There's a certain emotional trauma that comes out of those experiences, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how comfortable you are with violence, how the brain copes with this sparring session today may be different than the way it copes with it tomorrow. How it deals with this type of fight versus that type of fight may be different. And again, everybody is different and how they cope with trauma is different. So some people can just fight every three months, do a jujitsu tournament, do a Muay Thai fight, do a jitsu tournament, do a Muay Thai fight, and they're fine. Me, I'm a basket case leading up to the fight and then just a bundle of emotions after the fight win lose or otherwise because i'm an addict (laughs) and all of those endorphins and the dopamine and everything that comes with it the oxytocin release it's a lot and i love it because it reminds me of the quote-unquote good old days but i also hate it because it reminds me of the quote-unquote good old days And I don't want to get addicted to that feeling and I don't want to start chasing fights at 51 years old because that is a absolute law of diminishing returns type of pursuit. But I have to put barriers around myself to protect myself from that because I recognize that I have habits. I recognize that I have a certain type of personality that lends itself to addictive choices. So I have to put a fence around myself at all times with everything and everyone that I interact with. Otherwise, it's very easy for me to justify what I'm doing because I'm so good at this point of justifying to myself how I'm taking care of my addiction that I can even use that as a justification to engage in addictive behavior again. There's no one as deceptive as an addict. And there's no one an addict can deceive more easily and quickly than him or herself. That's why Johnny Cash sings, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. Because he knows better. He knows his heart. He knows if June isn't in the vicinity, he's going to go hunting. He knows that. So drinking often can contribute to PTSD symptoms and increase irritability, depression, and feeling off guard So some drink to deal with insomnia that results from anxiety, anticipating nightmares and circular thinking. Last week, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning because the dogs had to go outside and my brain decided, hey, since we're awake, let's just worry about everything that's going to happen five hours from now and let's just figure it out right now. I didn't want to be awake. I prayed that the Lord would put me to sleep. I spun like I was in the spin cycle in the washing machine, like I could not get my brain to shut up. So, 3.30 to 5.30, thinky, thinky, thinky. 5.30, I finally exhausted myself, fell asleep, and then woke up an hour later. And I was wrecked for the entire day. All because I couldn't just let the dogs out and go back to bed. Nope. Let's solve all the world's problems and let's write the script for the day's events and let's make sure that everything is under our control before we ever even see the sunrise. In the old days... I'd just get up and start drinking. I'd just pop some pills and that would be that. Part of being sober, whether you're an addict or not, is simply accepting what is. Okay, it's 3.30, my brain wants to figure out all the world's problems. Apparently, I'm not going to go back to sleep, so let's redirect that energy. Let's get a book. Let's listen to a podcast. Let's watch a lecture on YouTube. Let's do something with all this energy but let's not write the script for the day. Let's not try to control outcomes. Let's not pretend that we're God and we have control over the events of the next 24 hours. Instead, let's redirect that energy towards something positive. Get up and have some tea, green tea. Do some push-ups. Meditate. Read a book, like I said. Direct that energy in a positive direction so at the very least, when you get to work the next morning and you look like you're hungover, you can say, I'm not hungover. I just, I woke up at 3.30 and I couldn't go back to sleep, so I decided to watch you know, three and a half hours of Donovan Riley podcast or Jordan Peterson lectures or the Jocko podcast or whatever. Do something. Watch the one championship fight card from last month, which was amazing, but do something positive with that energy rather than using that to just spin in circles and do, well, basically stinking thinking, we call it. It's just worthless, wasted time you don't control the outcomes. You can't write the script and you're not God. So just accept reality for what it is. Accept that you're awake and use that time productively. Clean your house. I've done that before at four o'clock in the morning. My wife woke up and couldn't understand why the living room and the kitchen were so clean. I had a lot of nervous energy and I thought, eh, why not? And so drinking can make us less effective when we use it to cope with those emotions, with those anxieties, because you're not allowing yourself to effectively deal with the trauma in a safe, healthy setting, and as she points out, with a trained professional. Call your sponsor. Go to a meeting first thing in the morning. Find a meeting that starts at 5.30 or 6.30 or 7.30 and hit it. Go get it. Because people who use substances may be less able to cope with a traumatic event. They have increased difficulty with emotional and behavioral regulation. See, again, all this soft language. We have trouble controlling ourselves is what it comes down to. We got to put a leash on ourselves. We got to stay inside the fence because we have difficulty with boundaries. Where We have difficulty saying no to the thoughts in our head. When the little man that lives in my head rent-free and screams lies at me all day long really gets going, it's hard to ignore And so it's hard to shut him up. And it takes an awful lot of willpower sometimes to just say, shut up. I'm not listening. You're a liar. (laughs) That's when the chemical use starts for addicts though. Because that voice says, hey man, has alcohol ever broken his promise to you? Has it ever not delivered on his promises? Has the Percocet ever, ever betrayed your trust? And the answer is never. Alcohol and drugs did exactly what they promised they would do for me. What they left out was that they were going to kill me. But if you read the label on the back, in the fine print it says, abuse of alcohol and drugs may lead to an early death because you're borrowing all of your tomorrows and eventually all of your tomorrows are going to run out and you're going to die because your pursuit of the womb, your pursuit of a place in a time when you were safe, and you were sheltered from this world, and things were muted and quiet, that only exists out there in front of you in one other place, the grave. So you can pour as much liquor down your throat as you want. You can pop as many pills, snort as much Coke, inject as much heroin as you want. You're running on the same path. Your destination, your target, your goal is the same. And it is the grave. It is the cemetery. Make no, there's no bones about it. There's no doubt. That's the end game here. You use alcohol and drugs to cope. Again, crazy in jail or dead. Or you can chose that choose that fourth option. Get sober. Embrace the pain. Embrace the struggle. Accept that life is a fight. That life is pain and struggle. And that the way that you interface with that pain and that struggle, the way that you choose to not fight and to run away from the fight, crazy in jail or dead. Those are your options. And if you chose sobriety, if you do choose sobriety, it's hard. And you're going to take your lumps and you're going to have bumps and bruises and you're going to have scars because the world is a brutal place and it does not give two shits about you, whether you live or whether you die. You have to decide for yourself what's worth living for and who is worth living for, starting with yourself. Again, the definition of dignity is self-value, self-worth. <clears throat> you, can't, <clears throat> excuse me, you can't let the self-doubt cannibalize the very best parts of you. And no matter how deep you are in the throes of addiction, there are still the best parts of you there. They may be anesthetized, they may be covered up, And you may be blind to them because of the alcohol and drugs, but there is a lot about you worth loving. There is a lot of you that is valuable for yourself and for others, but the alcohol and the drugs are liars. Yes, they keep their promise to you. Yes, they do what they say they're going to do, but they also leave out the other 10% of the truth, which is we're actually hiding the very best parts of you from you. And not only from you, but from everybody. And so we cannibalize ourselves and we create this endless cycle then, this circle of self-doubt and cannibalization of the very best parts of ourselves. And then the alcohol and drugs help us cope with the destruction that we are committing upon ourselves. So if you are struggling, reach out, go to a meeting, Contact a therapist or a counselor. Check yourself into rehab. Choose the fourth option. Choose sobriety. Hit me up in my DMs. Again, I'm not always quick to answer. Do not text me on Facebook. I never check my messages on Facebook. I just don't. I'm hardly ever on Facebook. But if you DM me on Instagram, I'll do my best to respond to you. I don't know if anything I said in the last hour and four minutes made any sense whatsoever to anybody listening. Because again, I'm going through all this stuff again. I'm going through all the old resources and materials I have listening to presenters again, really chewing on this stuff seriously again. And part of it is listening to other people who are newly sober talk about their experience. And again, me being reminded of how exciting it was to be in that pink cloud when I first got sober and how easy it is to treat sobriety like it's just another job that has to get done today. So if I made any sense whatsoever, if anything I read or talked about made any sense, thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope it helps. Again, I can't tell you how to get clean and sober. I can't show you a roadmap. I can't give you the answer that's definitive All I can say to you is it gets better. It does. I promise you that. It does get better. But it gets better in the midst of the struggle and the fight. It doesn't get better in the sense that you don't struggle and fight. It doesn't get better in the sense that life is just roses and unicorns and all that stuff. It's not. It's a fight every day. And the world is a brutal, unforgiving place. But if you choose sobriety and if you choose that option for yourself, if you choose to climb and to fight and to survive, if you get a new mission, if you set a new goal for yourself, I promise you, it does get better. Maybe not right away and maybe not for decades, depending on your trauma, but it does get better and one day you will wake up and you'll be able to breathe again. And... In time, the emotions will subside and you'll be able to laugh again and you'll be able to smile again and you'll be able to be grateful and experience true joy and satisfaction again. But it starts off by simply choosing right now to live. Not exist, not avoid death, but to live. And if you don't know what that means, because I didn't for a A long time, then that's your first step. Your first step is admitting you have a problem and seeking help and asking, how do I live sober? And you do that by asking other alcoholics and drug addicts who are in recovery. And they'll walk with you and they'll share with you and they'll help you along the way. They'll sit with you in the ditch and they'll carry you out of the ditch. And they'll walk with you on the path because we're all on this path together remember that. All right, space monkeys. I'll talk to you again real soon. Peace.